0: It could have been a lot worse. Good thing it was just hair color. Hey, uh, many times in life things aren't always as they appear. This is from that particular category of things aren't always as they appear at first glance. Uh, a story is told of a California highway patrol officer who was working the area near downtown Los Angeles waiting to catch any speeder that would go by. And as he was sitting there he noticed a car that drew, that was driving by and it was going like maybe 10, 15 miles an hour at Tops and He thought, you know, a a driver going that slow is just as dangerous as somebody that's speeding. So he goes and he puts his lights on, pulls up behind, and he notices he's walking up to the car that there's five little old ladies in the car. There's two in the front seat and three in the back seat. And he goes over to her and says, ma'am, can I see your license? He says, I don't understand what's going on. I, I know I wasn't speeding. I was going exactly the speed limit. And he said, well, no, ma'am, you know, it's just as dangerous to be going below the speed limit as it is to be going the speed limit. she said, no, I was going exactly the speed limit. In fact, look at that sign right there. What does that sign say? And the police officer looked over, and he, and he was trying to hold back from laughing, but he said, that, that, ma'am, that's, um, that says the 10 freeway. The 10 freeway. And, and uh, that's not the speed limit. That's the freeway that you're driving. It's the Santa Monica. It's the 10 freeway. And she goes, Oh. And uh, so he just kind of warns her, and before she leaves, he looks in the car and says, is everybody okay in here? And he goes, you know, you, you haven't said a word, and you all look like you're scared to death. And the, and the lady driving goes, oh, they'll be okay in a minute, because, you see, we just got off the 110 freeway. <laughs> the points. Confusion can certainly lead to dangerous behavior. You know, one of the many things I love about the Bible is that uh, studying it, we find that in God's Word, He always provides clarity in the midst of confusion. You know, the Bible tells us that the Word is a lamp unto our feet, it's a light unto our path, it tells us where we are, it tells us where God wants us to go. And uh, as we've been going through the book of James, we've learned that God wants us to grow up and not just old. That he wants us to mature in our faith. And he tells us specifically how the process is to occur. You know, and to date we've discovered that uh, we're to be growing through trials and temptations. That we're to be growing beyond personal favoritism, which is another way of saying to wrongly judge others by their outward appearance. That we're to get beyond that. That we're to be growing through faith. That we're to be walking or living by faith, with the, which is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen. That God's people live by faith and trust in what God reveals, even though we haven't seen it come to fruition, we know that he's trustworthy, he's dependable, he's reliable, and we walk and we live by the fact that we know that what God tells us to do, even if we've never experienced it, even if we haven't got there yet, that it'll be just as he, has, that he says that it will. That we're walk by faith and not by sight that we're also to be maturing through controlling our tongue and the things that we say to one another and the way that we say it, and also by seeking godly or heavenly wisdom rather than leaning on the reasoning of men or to look at the revelation of God. And today we're going to continue the idea of becoming mature by examining a passage that clearly teaches us that we're to be growing beyond selfishness. Growing beyond selfishness. You know, one of the most obvious characteristics of an immature person is that of selfishness and, you know, and we've often seen, we often see that demonstrated in the lives of children because if you stop and consider the life of a child, you don't have to teach a child to say, give me, give me that, that's mine. He's not sharing, she's not sharing, I want it. You don't have to teach a child to say any of those things because it comes quite natural. And uh, as you think about that, also children don't have to be taught to fight with their brothers and sisters or people around them. We have to teach them what? Can you please get along? Can you stop fighting? Why are you always fighting? What are you fighting about this time? And it all goes back, in essence, to selfishness. And so as we look at this and we understand that, God is telling us that we're to be growing beyond selfishness. We're to be growing beyond fighting and wars, quarrels and conflicts. And if you think about it, quarreling and conflicts and fighting and wars are a part of life because in spite of treaties and timeouts, and all those wonderful things we come up with, and world peace organizations, and despite the fact that we, we, we're threatened by nuclear bombs and chemical and, and biological warfare, the reality is is that, you know what? This world isn't getting along. People don't get along. There's quarrels, there's conflicts, there's, there's wars and rumors of wars and all those things, and we need to recognize and understand what God has for us as God's people. Now, you've got to understand something. It is different for God's people, and we are told to live a different way than the people around us. So if you've got your Bibles, hopefully look in James chapter 4, and we're going to take a look at what God tells us that we're to be doing as far as maturing in our faith as we're learning to be growing beyond personal selfishness. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, will be the passage that we look at today. And in this particular passage, it's going to be uh, it's an important theme as it relates to wars and fighting. And in this paragraph, we're going to examine three wars that are going on in this world and how they can be stopped. James chapter 4, starting with verse 1, we read this. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. And you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you who judge your neighbor? In this particular passage, where we're, we're, there's three wars that are identified, and we'll take a look at each one of them very simply and to the point, because as we look at this, it becomes very clear that God has some very definite things that he has to say about how we're to be growing uh, beyond selfishness, to be growing beyond selfishness. The first thing you know, that we need to notice is that we are at war with one another. What are the three wars that are identified in the passage? He says, we are at war with one another. Notice in verse one, He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now the question is, who is this question being asked of? And we realize, because as we've gone through it, that God is asking that question of who? God's people. The question for Christians or believers is, who is being asked the question? God's people. What is the question that's being asked? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you people? It's as if he's saying, what's your problem? Why are you always fighting with each other? Why can't you get along? Don't you know what the word of God says about you as believers and your relationship to one another? Don't you realize that it's good and pleasant for brothers to dwell together in unity? Don't you understand that God's goal for his kids, as any parents, if you stop and think about it, don't you, as parents who have children, want your children to get along? Don't you want harmony in your household? Don't you want unity in your household? You don't want division. You don't want strife. You don't want chaos. You don't want confusion. You want all the nonsense that goes on. And so he's asking a very simple question. What is the source of the problems here? What's the source of the quarrels and conflict among you people? Don't you realize what God has to say? He wants us as his kids to get along with one another. It is good and it's pleasant for brothers to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133. It's also the reason that Jesus prayed, Father, you know, make them one or unite them just as you and I are united and are one. God wants his kids to get along with each other. God wants believers to be united in purpose and intent. God wants us not to be fighting one another, but be fighting the enemy who's destroying this world and people in it. God wants us to turn our attention and our efforts away from in-house fighting and going about the war that we are in the midst of. We're in the middle of a spiritual battle and spiritual warfare, and we're spending way too much time and way too much energy fighting one another instead of doing what it is that God has called us to do. And 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 the bottom line of it is this, that we are immature believers. Nobody likes to be told they're acting like a kid, you know. particularly the older you get. But the reality of the rebuke is this, you know what? We all need to grow up. No 17, 18, 19-year-old kid likes to be told they're acting like a 4-year-old. Why? Because there's a point where it's time you put childish things aside and you become a man or a woman and you grow in responsibility and accountability. There's a point where we have to all get beyond acting like children. And so God is saying that we need to recognize and understand that he wants us to be one, and the question is a very simple one, so what do you think is causing all these problems? God wants us to be united, yet all you've got to do is read through the Bible and realize, you know what, that there's continual conflict that's found all throughout the word of God. I think about the fact that the disciples frequently argued over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Could you imagine being with Jesus every day and many times their conversation drifted to or heatedly drifted to an argument as to which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of God? They argued over it. They were divided over it. They fought. They literally fought over it. They almost came to blows over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Who would sit at Jesus' right? Who would sit at his left? Who would be recognized when people came into the room as we learned as they sat up at the head table? Who was up front? They argued over that. They fought over that. The members of the Corinthian church were competing with each other in public places, and public meeting places. And in fact, they argued and fought so bitterly that they took each other and sued each other and took them to, to heathen secular courts to try to resolve their differences. They also argued about which spiritual gifts were the greatest, and who had the greatest gifts, and what the greatest gift was, and who did the most benefit to the, to the body of Christ or, the, or to the church. They argued over these things. My gift's greater than your gift. It's like, what? And the the rebuke was there, wait a minute, what do you have that hasn't been given to you by God? And how can you boast about a gift that God's given you? And you went, nanny, 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 I got the gift of teaching. (laughs) What's your gift? Can you imagine? I mean, it's it's amazing to me. They argued over who would be baptized by who. According to Galatians 5.15, the members there were biting and devouring one another. Today we say, man, we're chewing each other up and spitting each other out. We're tearing each other apart. They're biting and devouring one another. Paul had to admonish the Ephesians to cultivate spiritual unity. When you have a chance, read Ephesians chapter 4 sometime on your own, verses 1 through 16, and notice how many times he uses the word one, one body, this, that, the other, one, one, we got one head, we got one Lord, we got one Savior, we got one body, there's one, 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 we're to be united, united in unity. It goes all throughout there. He had to admonish them. Hey, you know what? what? What are you all fighting about? Even his beloved church in Philippi had problems when he called out two women who couldn't get along with each other. He called them out by name and said, man, what did you two get along? I mean, your reputation is so despicable that I've heard about it all the way here, and I'm writing to you from prison saying, what, what's wrong with you people? Why don't you get along with each other? Now, in his letter, James also mentions many causes of quar- quarrels and fighting. He, first of all, we saw in, in, uh, in chapter 2 that there were class wars. that had to do with the rich and the poor that those who had money were being noticed and given attention, those who didn't have money were being sent to the back of the church and they weren't being recognized whatsoever. They were dividing each other according to what each other wore, what each other drove, and what kind of cars that they had. Not necessarily, but but um, you know what kind of horse they rode in on. Um, you know, they were dividing each other according to external material things, and there were class wars that were taking place. And the rebuke for all of us is simply this, is that you know what? If any church divides based on those as external or exterior motives, that we are wrong before God. That the value system's messed up. When we start to give more credence or credibility to someone who has material things versus somebody who doesn't, God says, what's wrong with you people? That's not right. And in the same context, we saw very in-depth the stupidity and the ignorance of judging people by external criteria such as just the color of their skin. And how God rebukes us who would do that. That somehow someone would think they're more valuable or more, or, or, or somehow even better than a person that has a different skin color or a different cultural background, different ethnic background. And God says you're ignorant of the word of God and you're stupid in your application if you do it. We also will see in in chapter 5 where there's uh, employment wars in verses uh, 1 through 6, which has to do just basically with the conflict that goes on in labor, how a person hires a person, promises to pay them something, then doesn't give them what they said they're going to pay. Or the person that takes the job says they'll do a certain job, they don't do what they were supposed to do, and yet they still demand to be paid. And all the labor wars, and we'll go into that in great detail later. And then there were church wars, one church fighting another church. And all the things that go on in in-house fighting and everything that goes along with that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And then there were the personal wars. The personal wars, which we see here in, in this particular chapter in verses 11 through 12, where he says, don't speak against one another. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law. And the battle was out. And look in, in chapter 3, we saw the last time we were together. In chapter 3, the same thing that, we're, that we see here, where it's like, hey, look at this. Where bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every evil thing. So we look at the word of God and we go, wow, you know, these people were really messed up. You know, they had some problems here. But it doesn't take too long to realize, you know what, as much change or gotten better. Think about the problems that go along in local churches and the selfish ambition or, or, or the jealousy that goes on and the in-house fighting that takes place and all the garbage that goes along with that. And I, and I, you know, and I laugh and I cry and, and I'm confused all at the same time. You know, it's like we have people that argue and debate about which Bible study a person should go to, which service they should go to, what ABF they should belong to, whether they should go to two services, one service, one service in a class, whether they should go an evening service, should they come on Wednesdays, should they be involved in a small group, why aren't they going to the retreat, why aren't they signing up for the social, why aren't they doing this, why aren't they doing that, hey, I got an announcement to make, why don't you make that announcement, And you made the announcement, you didn't make it as long as I thought it should be, you didn't put as much effort in as the last announcement that you put into, you put more announcement into Mary's hair than you did in this thing that we have going on you know more effort, passion, energy you know what man we should be having music we shouldn't be having music, I hate bands I love bands, I can't stand bands I want a solo, I want an a cappolo. I want this, I want that, I want hymns I want to use the book, I don't want these songs I don't want this stuff we're just like what in the world is going on here where should we be baptized, where shouldn't we be baptized where should we do baby dedications where shouldn't we do them I mean it's like man I'm glad we're not guilty of any of that Can you imagine? It's so unfortunate that here it is, God's people are at war with each other over things like that, leader against leader, and church against church, and fellowship against fellowship, and the world watches all of it, and you know what they say? Behold how they don't love each other. And yet Jesus says this in John 17, he prayed that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The early church once it get over its infighting, and its backstabbing, and its selfish ambition, and its jealousy. The world looked at Christians and said, Behold, man, there's one thing that you've got to say about these people. They love each other. They care for each other. They're there for each other. They step to the plate when it's time to go to bat for one another. We're not sure about Jesus. We're not sure about any of this other stuff yet. But I'll tell you what, when I see the results in the lives of these people, it makes me at least attracted to them to want to listen to what they have to say. But when I see them fighting and stabbing each other in the back and slitting each other's throat and saying bad things about each other and, you know, vicious rumors and gossips and tearing each other apart, I just look at them and say, you know what? What's so exciting about being a Christian? Is that what it's all about? The question you've got to ask yourself is, why are we at war with one another? Think about it. We belong to the same family. We trust the same Savior. We're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. And yet we fight with one another. You've got to ask yourself the question of why. And that's the question that he addresses in the next war that he identifies. And that is the war that takes place within ourselves. Not only are we at war with one another, But we are also at war with ourselves. Notice in this first verse again, he says, Is not the source of your pleasures, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. And you're envious and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. And then you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. There's the answer. What causes our fighting and quarreling, our bickering and backstabbing? What's the root problem? It's your pleasures that wage war in your own members. It's the battle within the human heart that leads to all conflicts. It's the war of the inside that if it's lost, and we do not win it, will then be reflected in the battle on the outside with those around us. If we lose the battle of the heart, we will then battle with one another. That's why in James 3, in verses 14 through 16, which we just saw, he says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. He's saying that God will identify that we have a heart problem, that it's within our own heart. And we'll rationalize and justify and argue with God. No, God, that's not my problem. And he says, don't be so arrogant that you even lie against God's truth. God's telling it the way it is. And yet you'll still argue with God. You'll still debate with God that you're not a selfish person when the evidence is overwhelming. Don't be so arrogant and prideful that you would argue with God and lie against God's truth. He says, that wisdom's not that wisdom that comes from above. Because we know this, that God reveals his wisdom. But the wisdom that we get from our own reasoning is that which is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. And the point of it is very simple, and that's this. If there is confusion, then it is not of God. If there is chaos, then it is not of God. If there is a mess in your house and it's so confusing, and things are upside down, you can't figure out what's going on, then it is not of God. If the church is not united, and it's divided, and there's chaos, and there's confusion, and there's fighting, and there's backstabbing, and there's people jumping up, try to take control, try to lead people in directions, and there's fighting even over that, then that is not of God. Because God is not a God of confusion or disorder. He is a God of unity and purpose and peace. And where there's no peace... Then God's hand is not in it. See, when we look at this, we need to recognize something very carefully, and I'm going to make this as clear as possible so no one misses this. The essence of sin is selfishness. The essence of sin is selfishness. And you say, But Chuck, how can you know that for certain? How can you be so sure that it's selfishness that it's the root of all sin? Because the word of God clearly gives us many examples To help us understand that He's revealed to us what the root problem is I want you to consider carefully Some of the examples Eve disobeyed God Because she wanted to eat of the tree And become wise like God Who was she thinking of? Herself Abraham lied about his wife Because he selfishly wanted to save his life. Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Who was he thinking of? Not doing what was right before God. He was thinking, man, I need to save my neck. And so God will understand if I lie. It's just not like, you know, it's for a good purpose. He rationalized, he justified. He reasoned to himself that it would be for a good purpose. It's to save my life. And after all, God's promised to make me a great nation. If I get killed right now, how can God follow through with what he says? And I don't want to put God in any kind of jam, so I think I'll help him out. Some of us can relate to that reasoning, can't we? Achan caused defeat to Israel in Joshua chapter 7 because he selfishly took some forbidden loot from the city of Jericho when he was told not to take it. And he hid it in his tent. Who was he thinking of? Not God, not God's people. He was thinking of himself. Wow, what a waste of all this goodie, all these goodies, man. And he hid it in his tent. And Israel was defeated because of it. and Many people suffered and people even died because of his selfishness. Judas selfishly betrayed Jesus. Why? Because money became his God. James and John asked for special thrones on the right and on the left of the Lord, not because he, they thought it would be great for the kingdom of God if two hot shots like them were on either side, man. oh hey Lord, you know, I, I'm just thinking of your program and, and what you got coming up, and I think we're the most qualified. So, hey, what do you think? You know? Peter selfishly wanted to stop God's plan that would send Jesus Christ to the cross to die for the sins of the world for those who would believe. He wanted to selfishly stop that. Why? Because Jesus said, hey, you're setting your mind on who? On man's plans and not on God's. And he rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan, because that's what the devil wants. Can you imagine? The point is very clear. Selfishness is a very dangerous thing. Why? Because selfish desires will lead to wrong and sinful actions before God. Notice what he says in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. You lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so what? You fight and you quarrel. Then you don't have because you don't ask, and then when you do ask, you don't receive because you're asking with wrong motives just so that you can please yourself. Now, when I'm reading this, a wrong heart, a heart that's set on one's own desires, always leads to wrong actions. The first thing that's, that stood out in my mind as I was reading this, what do you mean you lust and don't have, so you commit murder? Man, you know what? What a perfect example that we have in scripture. Who do you think of immediately when you think of that? You lust, you don't have, so you commit murder. I think of King David. He's standing on the roof, he looks over, he sees a woman who's taking a bath and he goes, wow, man, she is hot. Who is she? Who is she? And he sends a servant to find out. He comes back and says, it's Uriah the Hittite's wife. Hey, you know what? She's good looking. I want her. I'm the king. I'm going to have her. Go get her. Bring her over here. You lost and you don't have. So what do you do? Hey, you know what? You sin before God. And he sinned. And not only did he sin and have sexual immorality or adultery, commit adultery with her, but then when she got pregnant, he wanted to cover his bases. So what does he do? He sends his, her, her husband to the front lines so that he's killed in battle. And not only is he an adulterer before God, but he's a murderer. Why? Because it all started in his heart. And for those who doubt us, go, doubt that, look at what the word of God has to say. And you doubt what we say. Look at, at Mark chapter 7 and recognize and understand the danger that takes place within the human heart. Mark chapter 7, look at the words of Jesus in verses 20 through 23. See, this is where the battle is being fought. This is where the battle is won or lost. This is where wrong actions begin. You don't just wake up one day and say, gee, I think that's I, ah, a nice day to sin before God. You know, nice weather, clear skies. Hey, how about, I think a sin is in order here. It doesn't start like that. It starts in our hearts. And Jesus warned us of that. And that's why he warns in, in Mark chapter 7. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, and he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. We need to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. We need more discerning as God's people. We need to recognize and understand that the battle is taking place in our hearts. That's why the word of God says we're to take thought every captive to the obedience of Christ, or take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. We've got to catch our thoughts before we start to dwell on those things. That's why Jesus said if you lust after a woman in your heart, then it's not long after that until you'll commit adultery. Because you're dwelling on it. You're thinking about it. And what we think about it is what we ultimately end up doing. That's why we've got to change how we think and adopt God's thoughts, God's mind. His mind's not ours. His ways aren't ours. His plans aren't ours. His, his revelation all comes from here. And now we can know the mind of God and we need to adopt what he says and make it part of our life. As Paul said, we're, whatever is pure and lovely and good repute, we're to dwell on these things and not on any of the other things of the world. Why? Because if we lose the battle in our heart, it's going to be demonstrated by how we live our life. How many times do you hear people say things like this? They always crack up when I say when I hear people say, ah, well, you know, uh, well, what, what are you doing today? Oh, we're just gonna go out and look for houses. We're not interested in buying a house. We're not interested in moving. We're not interested in anything. We're just out looking. We're going out looking for a car. We don't need a car. We don't want a car. We're not even gonna buy a car. We're just out looking. The next conversation you have with them is beep, beep hey, look at this car we bought. Oh, you mean the one you said you didn't want? The one you weren't going to buy? The one you didn't need? Yeah, isn't that weird? But you know what? It was such a good deal. It just all worked out. I don't want to cheat on my wife. But man, I found this woman and I met her on the airplane and she gave me her phone number and she gave me her her address and she said what a nice smile I had and how cute I was. But I don't really want to cheat on my wife and man, she is so good looking, and I've got to fly that flight again. In a, I'm in a town where nobody knows, but I don't really want to cheat on my life because I'd never do that. But man, she's so good looking. And then, wow, who would know? And what's the big deal? Oh, see how it all starts? It's all in our heart. It starts there. That's the battleground, isn't it? And we've got to win the war in our heart before we fail in our life. See, that's why faith without works is dead faith. Because our, our, our actions have to line up with our heart. And when somebody's actions are so different than what they say is in their heart, then you know what? Bottom line is this. You're either deceived yourself or you're trying to deceive me. It's one or the other. But you know what? It's not true. When you tell me that in my heart I really don't want to do this, but all my actions indicate that I do, then you know what? Either you're so deceived and you don't even know what's in your heart because it's wicked and deceitful above all else, or you're trying to lie to me and try to convince me that what you're doing isn't really what's in your heart. God says, no, man, you know what? What's in your heart is who you ultimately are. That's what you will do. That's who we become. And if we don't win the battle in our heart, then sin is crouching at our door, as he told Cain. What are you so angry about? What's your problem with your brother? You know what? Sin desires you. It wants to master you. Sin is crouching at your door, but you are responsible to master it. And if you do not, then you will sin. He did not, and he murdered his brother, and he was guilty of sin before God. The battle in the heart isn't where the sin takes place because we all struggle with it and we're going to see that. The sin takes place when we lose the battle of the heart. See, that's why Jesus said it's within our heart. And not only that, but notice this, he says another danger of a wrong heart is that it leads to wrong, a wrong prayer life. Lord, give me. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. I want this. And here's when I want it, here's how I want it, and this is how I want it. Give them to me. Give me, give me, give me. Give me. I can just see King David praying on the roof. Lord, beautiful woman. Give me her. Gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give gimme, gimme. Gimme, gimme. Hey, go get her. In case God's slow and delivering. Um, give me. See, and that's what he's saying. You're envious. And you can't have what you want, so what do you do? You fight over it. You don't get what you want, so you fight over it. Until somehow or another you think you're going to get what you want. And then we turn it into something very spiritual. Lord you know my heart, that's why I like this, exactly, that's why you ain't getting what you're praying for, because you don't even know what you ask, because you're asking with wrong motives, and I'm not delivering, I'm not giving you something that's wrong, I can't, there's no darkness in me, I can't deliver sin upon your doorstep, because that's what you pray for, he goes, and then you ask why, and you got wrong motives, that's why you don't get it, because God can't deliver things that are outside the will of God, have you ever struggled in your prayer life where you're praying for something and God's like, "Hey, you know what? Don't even waste your time." It cracks me up. I hear people all the time praying, "Lord, oh please Lord, just give me this guy." Hey, does the guy love the Lord? Does he know Jesus Christ? Is he inviting him into his heart as a savior and Lord? Is he living a godly life? Well, no, he's not a Christian, but, "Lord, please give me him." It ain't going to happen. 1 Corinthians 6, he's already revealed. You know what? There's no fellowship with darkness and light. You're not going to be unequally yoked with a non-believer. What are you praying about marrying a guy for that doesn't know Christ? Because God's not going to change his mind. You ask with wrong motives. Lord, I, I need a raise, man. I need a raise and a, and a job, and I need a bigger raise, and I need a better position, and I need, I need authority. I need power. <laughs> Why do you want that? Why? Because I want to just start firing people hey, that'll be real Christ-like. Yeah, I think I'll deliver that to you. But we even try to confuse it a little bit and try to, you know, play games with God. Maybe God really doesn't know our heart, so we tell him what he wants to hear, what we know we should say. And Christians do that all the time, don't we? We blow smoke at each other all the time, all day long. It's like, well, you know, I really want this to work out. No, I don't. I hate the guy, and I hope this all falls apart. But, you know, I love that. I love to just do a spoof like that where, you know, you have Christians saying the right stuff and then you can have their heart revealed like God sees it, you know, in a little caption next to it. No, really, I want to be a godly leader at our company. You know what? I got these six people I'm going to fire first thing right off the bat. And it just shows up on a screen, you know. But see, the issue is this. As Christians, we are to deny ourselves. We are to deny ourselves. Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God, who loved me, and he gave himself for me. You see, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. I am to deny myself. If any man wishes to follow me, Jesus said, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. Selfish living, selfish praying always leads to conflicts and quarrels. Listen very carefully for those restless souls who may be among us today. People who are at war with themselves because of selfish desires are always unhappy, miserable people. They never enjoy life. They choose not to see the blessings of God, but the things that they don't have instead of what they do have. They don't get along with other people because they envy what they have or what they do. And they want the same in their own life. And they don't see what God has already given them and the blessings they already have because they're always blinded by the things that are around them that they still don't have. And so their restless pursuit of trying to find something to fill this void in their life is always filled with the constant pursuit of doing other things, making more money, meeting new friends, going different places, always struggling with trying to figure out void in my life, Ecclesiastes 2 answers it, Solomon said it, and he said, you know what, if you're looking for satisfaction in any area outside of a relationship with the God who created you by trusting in Jesus Christ, that it'll be vanity, and it's vanity, it's all vanity, and it's vain, and it's useless, and it'll never deliver what you think that it will. I had a chapel last week, and I was talking to the Texas Rangers, and I hope they don't hold it against me, but I just told them this, look, if you ever get to the World Series and you think that'll that'll produce the joy and satisfaction that you're looking for in life, then you're going to be sadly and rudely disappointed. I've had the privilege of talking to people who accomplished great things in this this life. And once the newness wore off, that void was still there. Because a Super Bowl ring, a World Series ring, a promotion on your job, a 500% increase in your your salary, uh, anything that you're looking for in life that you think is going to fill that void that only God says can be filled by a relationship with Him, you will be sadly and rudely disappointed, and the pursuit continues. The most miserable, unhappy people in the world are Christians who are looking to find satisfaction and contentment in something other than their relationship with God. And that's sad. And it's tragic. And it's like the prodigal son. You know what? The prodigal son took his problems with him. They weren't in his circumstances. They certainly weren't with his father, who was was an example of us, of who God is. The problems that he had were in his heart and he took his money, and he went to look for something else to do, and he slopped with the pigs, and he came to his senses one day, and he said, you know what? What in the world am I doing slopping with pigs, trying to find joy and contentment and peace and satisfaction? The problem isn't in my circumstances. The problem is in my heart. And we find people in our culture all day long running from job to job and spouse to spouse, family to family, business to business, state to state, always moving, always looking, always going as fast as they can because they're not slowing down and they're not s- it's slowing down. Cease striving, God says, and know that I'm God. Let me take care of the innermost needs of your heart and stop chasing soap bubbles that'll just burst in your face and then you'll wipe the soap in your eyes and you'll just compound the mess that you've already made of your life. See, that's the problem here. James identifies that we're at war with others, we're at war with ourselves, and he moves on to the third war that we need to look at carefully, and that is a war that, you know what, many of us are fighting, and we wouldn't admit it, and we certainly, you know, and, and unfortunately, a lot of us would never admit any of this. would never admit we're fighting with other people. We certainly wouldn't admit, oh, you know, I'm at war in my heart. There's a restlessness in my soul. There's something that's wrong there, but I can't really share that with you because I've got, like, I've got this front that I need to put on. That's why he says don't be hypocritical. Don't wear a mask. Be, be up front. Be transparent. Be accountable to other believers. Lay it on the line. Look, I'm struggling with my marriage. I'm struggling with my business. I'm struggling to make purpose and sense of my life. Help me understand what God's plan is for my life. See, because if you don't, you'll find yourself also at war with God. It's like Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump strapped to the mast of a ship shaking his fist in the face of God, daring God to take him out in the storm. We're at war with God. You know, the root of every war, internal and external, is rebellion against God. It really is. At the beginning of creation, we're told of perfect harmony, but sin entered the world and with it came conflict. How does a believer, remember, that's who he's writing to. We're talking about believers that are at war with God. How does a believer declare war on God? It's critical that we understand it. How does a believer declare war on God? Here's how we do it. By being friendly with God's enemies. By being friendly with God's enemies. Now the question is this, who are the enemies of God? And that's what he identifies for us. Number one, the first enemy of God is the world. Turn to 1 John chapter 2, back a couple of books. And we see the definition because this word is used often in scripture and it's important that we finally define it, understand exactly what it is that God refers to when he says that we are at war with God or what it means to be a friend of the world. In 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 we read this, we're told as believers, don't love this world, do not love the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. You notice notice the definition? Don't love the world or the things of the world, in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, right, here we go. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The world, according to the Bible, is a system of thinking that appeals to our appetite, to our imagination, and to our pride. It's a system that promotes an anti-God and anti-Christ way of thinking and acting. It's choosing man's reasoning versus what is revealed in the word of God. Friendship with the world is compared to adultery. Notice that in the book of James. In in verse 4 of chapter 4, it says, You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? You notice that God uses adultery to help illustrate this truth of loving the world rather than loving God. The Bible says that believers have been bought with a price. The Bible tells us that the church is the bride of Christ and that Jesus is the bridegroom. We're told that we're to be forsaking all others. Friendship with the world is like cheating on God. Friendship with the world would be like a guy inviting his wife out to dinner and when they get there and they sit at the table, another woman walks over, sits down with them and the husband says to the wife, oh, by the way, I thought I would invite my mistress to join us tonight. Now, how well do you think that evening is going to go over? But that's exactly what we do. That's exactly what believers want God to accommodate. Oh, by the way, Lord, I think I'm going to invite this area of my life into our relationship. Spiritual adultery carries with it the idea of divided attention, trying to juggle the will of God and the will of man. Somehow we want to keep one foot in the world and do what we want to do, but then we want to have this other foot over here, and God, I want to do what you want to do. So we come to church on Sunday and we think we're putting in our time and doing what God wants us to do and say, God, I got up and I went to church today. Foot's over here. Oh, but the rest of the week my foot's over here and I'm going to live any way that I please. You know what? Here's your place in our relationship. Don't step over your boundaries. Don't come with me home. Don't come with me to my office. Don't come with me to school. Don't come with me on the athletic field. Don't come with me into the locker room. Don't come with me anywhere Then you just belong in church and I'll meet you there, but the rest of the time you leave me alone. That's what God's people are mistakenly believing when we love the world. That we're at war with God when we do that. Man, one of the most interesting articles that has been sent to me recently or I came across was written by Charles, Charles Colson, and I want you to listen to this carefully because it illustrates perfectly what it is that God wants us to understand. I've made my choice, wrote the young basketball star. I love Jesus Christ, and I try to serve him to the best of my ability. How about you? Who is this? Is it David Robinson of the San Antonio Spurs? Well, it may surprise you to learn that that track was written 30 years ago by former Senator Bill Bradley. Bradley has since renounced his Christian faith And his actions are a warning of the perils of political expediency and of not holding our fellow believers accountable. The pamphlet was entitled, I've Made My Choice. It was published in the 1960s by the American Track Society when Bradley was a rookie with the New York Knicks basketball team. In it, Bradley recounts how he accepted Christ while a student at Princeton. Quote, I knew I had been giving my life to the wrong goals. I knew then that I wanted to give my life to Jesus Christ and to his service. Well, not anymore, it appears. In his 1996 memoirs, Bradley says he was put off by the exclusive truth claims of fundamentalist Christianity. He was also bothered by the uncharitable attitudes and racism displayed by some Christians. Bradley now disavows his Christian beliefs and, according to Investor's Business Daily, says, quote, he now embraces all religions from Buddhism to Islam so long as they all seek inner peace. Well, these are chilling words from a man who once was very active in the fellowship of Christian athletes. It appears that he has either renounced his faith entirely or he has decided for political reasons to renounce it publicly. After all, the Democratic Party has never really warmed up to evangelical Christians, and politicians in general are afraid to talk about tough moral issues. Now, since I believe that a person once saved is always saved, I have to conclude that either Bradley was not truthful in his earlier testimony or that this is purely a political move that down deep, Bill Bradley knows the truth. But is there anything scarier than someone who knows the truth and yet publicly denies it? One trembles for the state of his soul. Bradley's story is a cautionary tale, not just for Christians who go into politics, but for all of us. Here was a man who was converting others to Christ, and somewhere along the line, he got off the rails. It is a warning that we need to constantly keep ourselves fresh in the faith, to attend discipleship classes, to hold one another accountable. It is a cautionary tale as well as to what the political system does to candidates. It does seem to reward politicians for turning their backs on unfashionable commitments like Christian faith or pro-life positions. But what kind of leader does that produce? And can such a leader ever be trusted? As Bradley rises in the polls, Christians ought to pray that he will come to his senses. I can't think of anything more frightening than knowing the truth but denying it publicly. And as for Bradley, I hope and pray he will consider or reconsider the words that he himself wrote in that long-ago tract when he wrote this. The choice is simple. It is between the eternal and the passing, between the strong and the weak, between Jesus Christ and this world. Now, before we're too tough on Bill Bradley, we need to ask ourselves a question. We need to examine our own hearts. We need to ask ourselves this question, which have I chosen? Is it Jesus Christ or is it this world? Because it's one or the other, it's not both. God will not accommodate that type of position in the life of a believer. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're to love him wholeheartedly without any reservations. He's to come first in our life and his word should be obeyed. If we love him, he says we'll obey his commandments that we keep him first in everything, that we obey his word, that we renounce or denounce this world and we put Jesus Christ first and preeminent in everything in our life. As Joshua said, I don't care about the rest of you people, but as of this day, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will put him first because he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot hold to gain that which he can never lose. What this world has to offer is temporary at best and we will not be able to hold on to it very long. But what God has to offer as we walk in obedience with Jesus Christ and as we're obeying his commandments every day, what he offers and lays ahead of us will be waiting for us when we stand before him. And he says to you and I, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of our master. But some of us are selling out. Because this world promises us things and it just glitters, but it's not all gold. And we turn our back on the one who died for our sins. and we we make neutral the blood of Jesus Christ in our life. We invite him to the dinner table and say, hey, I hope you don't mind, but you need to accommodate this area of my life. It's foolishness. And that's why he says that the, the war goes not only with the world, but also with the devil. We're told not to be conformed to this world. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And be not conformed to this world, but transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, that you'll know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The flesh is that old sin nature that we inherited from Adam that's prone to sin. The flesh is not our bodies. We need to understand that. The body is neutral. There's nothing good and there's nothing bad in our body but the flesh will use our body to sin before God, and the spirit will use our body to do that which brings glory to God. And we have a choice. That's why we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's why we go to God and say, Lord, use me. Use this body that I'm encapsulated in at this moment in time to bring glory to your name. But do not allow allow me to use this to, to produce sin in my life think about what he's saying the flesh the world the flesh as we look at this thing we need to recognize and understand that the battle is taking place every one of us to be honest with ourselves need to recognize there's a battle within us that rages daily And that is the battle of whether I'm going to do what's right before God or do what's wrong before God. Whether I'm going to live according to the reasoning of man or I'm going to trust the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding and reasoning and in all my ways I'll acknowledge him and he promises to set my path straight. But the battle is there. Every one of us have to go through that battle. So don't think that somehow you're weird, strange, or you're on your own. That's not it at all, man. We are all struggling with that battle. Why? Because it comes with sin nature. We are not totally free from sin nature and we won't be until the day that we're called home and we stand before the Lord perfect in his sight. So we all struggle with it. But we are also to what? To master it. That's what grown up's all about. Well, oh, I can't help it. A child says stuff like that. God's people as we mature should never ever use that as a lame, stupid excuse. I can't help myself. No, you can. You just don't want to. Because you've got the Spirit of God. If you know Christ, you've invited him into your life. The Spirit of God indwells you, and he gives you the power to live a life that's pleasing to God. It's not a matter of you can't do it. You just don't want to do it. So take responsibility for your actions. But don't be blaming God, man, because it's not his problem. He's given you everything that you need to defeat the world, the flesh, and also the devil. How do we resist the devil? I'll tell you how. By getting near to God. By dropping on our knees and praying. By getting in the Word of God and and, and reading the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. By meditating on the Word of God day and night. See, the devil doesn't want us to trust God. He wants us to trust ourselves. The devil doesn't want us to believe the Word of God. He wants to bring into question the Word of God. See, the devil wants us to think that we can do it on our own and we don't need God. The pride or arrogance of man says, I don't need to believe in Jesus Christ to be good enough to get into heaven. I'm going to do it myself. You see how the battle takes place? The world is in conflict with the Father. The flesh is in conflict with the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And you know what? And the devil opposes the Son of God. It's the unholy trinity, and that's the battle that takes place. See, the, son of, the devil wants us to question the Son of God. He wants us to question that it's salvation in Christ and in him alone. Oh, I don't think so. See, God just doesn't want you to be like him. God doesn't want you to do your own thing. God doesn't want you to have any fun. That's the lie that we're being convinced. And you know what? And you can't believe this anyway. You know, there's stuff in here. There's got to be contradictions in here. You know what? Really? No, there's not. There's none. It's the complete word of God. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. It's the sword of the spirit. It's the word of God. As we meditate on a day and night, don't let this, the book of the law depart from our mouth, but as we meditate on a day and night, and we're careful to do according to all that is written in it, the word of God says, and then you know what? We will be prosperous and we'll have much success. Don't deviate to the left or to the right. Go down, don't go down the road of a Bill Bradley who's selling out his relationship with Christ if it ever really existed for the expediency of something that this world has to offer in exchange. What a great disappointment he'll have one day as he stands as a believer if he's a believer before the, the judgment seat of Christ and has to give an account for the words that he spoke and the actions that he led that led people away from the Savior instead of toward him. And if he doesn't know the Lord, then you know what? He's just doing what comes natural, and that is it please himself. Because that's the root of all sin is selfishness. Now, the question I have for you as we go through this and we'll wrap it all up is that we need to recognize and understand that the Bible also gives us very clear instructions as to how to, uh, to get beyond this selfishness that each one of us struggles with. Three biblical ways to resolve conflict. You ready? Number one. Notice in verse 7 what we see. Submit, therefore, to God. Submit to God. First thing we need to do. Submit to God. Now obviously this letter is being written to believers. So we're going to take a look at it from that standpoint, but I also want to challenge those who don't know if they have a relationship with God, who don't know if they died today, what would happen to them, who aren't really sure that they have the confidence and the peace that comes with knowing that they believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins. To me, the ultimate submission has to do with the, the person who surrenders his heart and his will and says, Lord, I believe what you say, that I am a sinner, I'm separated from you, there's nothing good in me, and all I've got to do is look back uh, yesterday, and that'll be enough proof, yet alone over the course of my whole life, and I realize that what you say is true, that I need forgiveness and I need to turn to you and I need to submit my heart to you, I need to submit my mind to you, I need to submit my life to you, and I want to believe that Jesus Christ died for me. See, that's the ultimate act of submission on the part of any human being. Now for the believer, we're told that we're to submit to God. And you know what that means? It means get back in line under God's authority. It's a military term. Get back into your proper rank to be under the authority of another. Conflict is always the result when a private starts acting like a general, when a child thinks he's the parent, when an employee thinks he's the boss, when a player thinks he's the coach, and when a Christian starts to think that he is God. There's always trouble. There's always a mess. There's always confusion. The point is this. If there is any area of your life that you have not surrendered to God's authority, you will have conflict and be at war with God. David was at war with God for over a year because of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. And he tried to hide it from God. In Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, read it on your own, and you'll see the battle that took place in his life. He was rotten away. There's no more miserable place in the world for the believer than to have one foot in the world and try to put one foot in the kingdom of God. It's like walking on a fence. And if you ever try to do that when you're a kid the inevitability of slipping and falling with one foot on one side of the fence and one foot on the other side of the fence is not a comfortable proposition. So keep that word picture in mind if you think you can keep walking in a way that's not pleasing to God. The word of God says, commit your ways to the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That we'd be wholly devoted, wholeheartedly devoted. Is that you? You need to get back under his authority. Number two, we're told to what? Draw near to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How does one who is, who is uh, wrong before God draw near to God? Very simple. We go to him, and we say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. If we, are, he is faith, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. How does a child reconcile his relationship to his or her parents? When they've done something wrong, they go and say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? How do any of us reconcile our relationship to anybody? We've got to initiate the action and take responsibility. I am wrong. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? You know what the most awesome thing about God is this? Just as the prodigal son I mentioned earlier, check this out. When the prodigal son gained, regained his senses, was standing there with the pigs going, what in the world am I doing here, slopping with pigs, even the servants in my father's house are living better than I am, this is the dumbest thing I can think of, I am going to go back to him, and I am just going to ask his forgiveness, and I'm just going to work as a servant, because I'm no longer worthy to be a son, that was his game plan, and he had no agenda, he didn't go to him and say, hey, this is what I want to see happen, here's my four points, let's negotiate, we'll have a mediation, we'll get it all resolved. He was broken hearted, a broken and contrite heart God never despises. Why? Because we have no agenda. We go to God and say, I am sorry, forgive me for what I did. That's what he did. And you know what the awesome thing was? And this is what I get so excited about. See, when he says, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. I picture the prodigal son and he's running to his father's house and his dad isn't just sitting there like this making him come to him. His dad is running towards him. They're running to one another. God isn't sitting there pouting, waiting for you to make things right with him. When you go to God and you confess your sin, you can be guaranteed, you can be assured that as you draw near to him, he's drawing near to you. He loves you. He loves me. He wants us to be right with him. He wants us to have a relationship with him. He wants us to have joy and peace and contentment and fellowship with him. He wants us to stop fighting with each other. He wants us to come to him. And as we draw near to him, he draws near to us. The greatest and easiest pursuit in life is the pursuit of God because he's the only one that's running towards us and everything else in the world is trying to run away from us. That's where we find peace and joy and contentment and purpose. And the last thing is this, and it all ties together. Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before God in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. You know, all of that takes humility, doesn't it? It takes humility to be submissive to the authority of God in your life. Lord, not my will be done, but yours be done. It takes humility to go and say, I'm sorry, I sinned. I screwed up again. I don't know how you keep forgiving me. I don't even know why you love me. I don't even know why you want any relationship with me. What am I, Lord, that you would even consider me when I look at everything that you've done and how awesome you are and how perfect you are and how pure you are, and I'm such a mess. he says, I know that. That's why I sent Jesus to die for you because there's nothing good in you at all. You're exactly as you see you are. That's exactly what's reflected in the Word." You're a mess. You don't deserve anything. But that's what grace is. That's what God's love is. That's why it's so compelling. That's why it draws us to Him. But we need to humble ourselves before God. You know, some of us pray, Lord, you know, keep me humble. Dumb prayer. Dumb prayer. You know why? Because if He's got to make you humble, it's going to hurt. Stop and think about the stupid ways we pray. Lord, you know, if you have to, keep me humble. Hey, you know what? I will never pray that. Why? Because the word of God says, hey, you humble yourself. If I got to humble you, it's going to hurt. But if you humble yourself, boy, I guarantee you, will be a lot less pain in your life. So I say this, Lord, may I continue to humble myself before you. You don't have to humble me. No, 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 no. I'll I'll humble myself. (laughs) And if I don't do it, I'll have Linda do it. Uh, But, you know, there's a process before we have to get to you. (laughs) A whole bunch of other people in my life that will take care of that. Humble yourself before God. We'll close with this. Douglas Subtle Freeman, wrote a rather lengthy volume on General Robert E. Lee. But these are the words that illustrate the extent of the general's humility. It says, Of humility and submission was born a spirit of self-denial that prepared him for the hardships of the war and still more for the dark destitution that followed it. This self-denial was in some sense the spiritual counterpart of the social self-control his mother had inculcated him in his boyhood days, and it grew in power throughout his life. His own misfortunes typified the fate of the Confederacy and its adherents. Through it all, his spirit of self-denial met every demand upon it, and even after he went to Washington College and had an income on which he could live easily, he continued to deny himself as an example to his people. Had this, had his life been epitomized in one sentence of the book that he read so often, it would have been these very words, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And if one, only one of the myriad of incidents of his stirring life had to be selected to typify this message as a man, his message as a man to the young Americans who stood in hushed awe that rainy October morning as their parents wept at the passing of this old Southern general, who would hesitate in selecting this one incident? It occurred in Northern Virginia, probably on his last visit there. A young mother brought her baby to him to be blessed. He took the infant in his arms and he looked at it, and then he said to her very slowly and very deliberately, Ma'am, you must, you must teach him that he must deny himself. Isn't that the truth? You must teach him that he must deny himself. See, growing beyond selfishness really starts with understanding that we are not here to serve ourselves as believers. We've been bought with a price. We're to glorify the Lord our God and these earthly bodies, that even Jesus Christ came not to take, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We need to become people who deny ourselves and are used by God to give him all the glory and all the praise in every area of our life. Father, we thank you for your word. We just thank you for its truth, its relevancy, and we thank you for its power to change lives. I pray for those who are not sure of their relationship with you, that they would submit their heart to you today, that they would believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins, that they would believe he rose from the dead, demonstrating his power over sin and over death that they would understand that all they need to do is believe on him for the forgiveness of their sins. For it's by his grace that we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. And for all of us who have come into a relationship with you through believing in Christ, that we would live a life that is not at war with others and as far as it is possible with all us, that we should be at peace with all men, not compromising truth whatsoever, but laying aside selfishness, which is at the root of all of our quarrels and bitterness and conflicts. But we have the attitude that was in Christ, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with, thing, with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, he emptied himself before the Father. May we have that same attitude as we consider the will of you first and foremost, and then we consider those around us as more important than ourselves. In a selfish culture that promotes putting ourselves first at the expense of all else, may we be obedient people who put others first, who love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that who love our neighbors as ourselves and you tell us as we have that priority in mind and commit our ways to you, that then you will give us the desires of our heart. God, may we have the priorities in mind that are right before you, and we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.